Daniel chapter 1. Let's continue where we were. In the book of Daniel, and I, wanna, I want you to wrap up chapter 1 with some thoughts that you have of your own as we get into it. We know and we made this comment that this book is a lot of exciting material. And uh, from our perspective, it's exciting. I don't know if it was so exciting for Daniel at the first things that he experienced. I remember reading a story about a preacher. His name is Ray Ellis. He talks about how he grew up in a pastor's home, and he was a 12 or 13-year-old at the time, and about the time the age of Daniel. And he said all of a sudden one day his life changed drastically. He said, I was walking down the street in the small town where we lived and I saw my dad coming out of a house and on his arm was another woman that I didn't know. And he said, my dad and mom, they, everybody at church thought they were doing great and everything was fine. But my dad and this woman looked real cozy. My dad didn't see me, he said, but my dad got down, got into the car, and the two got in the car, and she was very, very cozied up to him in the car. He said, I was so angry. I went home. I told my mom. He says, our life changed drastically. And he says it wasn't a pleasant change. It was a challenging change. You can imagine that. If that, were, if that were a young person, if that happened, if you put yourselves in his shoes, that it would be really difficult. Well, Daniel faces life changes. That all of a sudden puts him in a difficult spot. Daniel and his friends who have, that we read about, they're in that middle teenage years. They get taken as captives, as hostage, hostages, away from their homeland where they've learned the language, where they know the people, where their family is at, where they know their, their customs, Customs, their religious practices, and they get put into Babylon at that time. And when they're in Babylon, they're basically told, we want to Babylonize you. We want to make you Chaldean. We want to train you. We want to, um, in today we would call brainwash. They're changing these young men. And so that was very customary, the Chaldeans, that what they would do is they would take the best from every society and they would make them part of their group and then those people would use their gifts, their talents, their skill set to be able to advance the, the um, nation, the industries, the finances of the Babylonians. And so Daniel's one of those. And what happened in chapter 1 is they're given a diet. And remember the point that Daniel writes about. And he gives us a little bit of details, just kind of just plugs it in there. Who picked the food for him? Who, who scheduled their, who ordered their breakfast, lunch, and supper? It was the king. If you remember in the text, it says the king appointed food for us. And when the king appointed food, the king didn't think about kosher appetites, say on dietary laws. So he just appointed food, and Daniel and his three friends, they decided that they didn't want to eat the food, not because they didn't like it, not because it might not be tasty, but they did not want to do what? Key phrase in Daniel 1 verse 8. They did not want to defile themselves. This had nothing to do with the idea of likes or dislikes. It had nothing to do with kids saying, I don't like peas or don't like broccoli. This had to do, period, with religious corruption or pollution that they wanted to avoid because of their laws that were given dietary laws as Jewish young men. So here they are in a foreign land going to abide by that. And when they determined this, that they were going to do it, they all of a sudden, they posed the option to the guy in charge of them, the fellow who was, or who was set by the king to keep supervision of them, they approached him and they said, hey, we have an idea. This food isn't the food that we would uh, want to be eating because of our dietary practices, religious practices. Could we try this type of food? And then you test us for a period of days and see which one of us in this big group, which one of us looks healthier, us or them? And if this food is, uh, is such that 
we appear healthier, then we'll stay with this diet for the three-year program that you have us under. And so the man's initial response, look at the text, he says, I fear the king. When he was first told this, that he has this idea that, that he is... Um, he is in his mind, this is risky because the king had appointed the diet. But then we read about what happened here. We read that um, Daniel made that proposition, and so verse 14, he consented to the matter, proved them the ten days. At the end of the ten days, their countenance appeared fairer and fatter and flesh than the other children that did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus, Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them this vegetable diet. As for these four children, then goes on makes some comments. As we go through that story, can we pause for a second and look at something that's very practical and you get some thoughts here? If we pick up in verse 8, listen and look at the story and put yourself in the setting. What if you were asked to do something at work that was against your moral principles? How do you respond to your, the authority over you? How do you respond to your boss who is asking you to do something that is reprehensible? That is something that would cause you in your ethics to go against the Word of God. How, what do you say, how do you respond to that person? Keep that in mind and watch how Daniel does it. It says, um, verse, nine, uh, verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. That's an important phrase that Daniel has already established some type of reputation with him. The prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king who hath appointed your meat and your drink, for why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall you make me endanger my head. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Prove your servants, I beseech thee, ten days. Let them, let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenances be looked upon before you and the countenance of the children that eat the portion of the king's meat. As you see, deal with your servants. What do you see there? What about his attitude, his response, his words, his suggestions. What stands out to you in dealing with an authority over you that is asking you to do something wrong? He's respectful. Anything else? He didn't demand. Sometimes look at what's not there. Okay? And I think that's really important, right? That he wasn't demanding. Anything else? Anything else stands out? He gave an alternative. He posed a creative option, did he not? By the way, some of you are in this spot. Some of you run into this. How do you respond you know, in that situation? Anything else you see or don't see in the text? Something he did or didn't do is what I mean. Okay, he's, he is courageous in this, right? At least he, let, let's put it out there. I hadn't even thought about it, but this is so true. He responded. He did something. He didn't just, you know, eat it and swallow it. He spoke up. I put down several thoughts, and I have had the option to be able, the opportunity to think about it, uh, but several thoughts. I think his graciousness and respectfulness stands out, okay, in that sense that to, to the immediate authorities. He's not critical or condescending. You don't see him ripping them apart and saying, how dare you? 
Why are you know this is stupid? This is something, and you know he doesn't react that way. He's not arrogant. He's not blatant. He he isn't giving ultimatums. So he's handling and and from the from the boss perspective, what happens if somebody were to give you an ultimatum? What is your your natural response? Yeah, yeah, just like hey, you're giving me an ultimatum. I'm going to give you one back. Okay, he doesn't do that. He doesn't threaten or attack. He doesn't undermine this guy. Okay, he still uses the chain of command going to him uh, in that sense. He doesn't ask others. Now, in this case, okay, in this case, he's not putting um, Melzar's head on the line in and of itself, himself. He's not take, asking him to take a risk that he himself isn't willing to take a risk. So he's taking some responsibility. He offers a constructive, creative proposal that would work for everybody and still keep the integrity and the honesty and the, the purity. The motive, and this is, this, is a, this is important, his motive was not escaping something unpleasant, but his motive was the glory of the Lord. Okay, that's something that he really wanted to make sure. I think there's some profound practical illustration here how to deal with people who are authorities who are asking you to do something wrong. How you can maintain integrity and then as well keep a relationship with those people. Now again, do we, do we understand that some bosses will, will be insistent no matter what? Okay, we understand that part. But in this case, and, I, and that one phrase that we pointed out, he was already brought in favor with the one who was over him. How do you become in favor with somebody? How does that happen? Besides, it's a working of God. We know that. But what do you, what ha, if to say, okay, um, my boss might listen to me because you've already done a good job. Okay, if you're a lousy worker, does the boss have any reason to listen to you anyway? No. If you're lazy, if you're a critical person, if you're always coming up with better suggestions because nobody else has it as, has the brilliance you have, and if that's portrayed, you don't go far. But in this case, he was able to make some, uh, some impact. So then the chapter, and usually when we preach this and teach this, I was going through a number of commentaries. Very few people deal with the last four verses. Everybody does the story and just jumps on. Says, oh, and they were, just, just as a pause, it gives us some information that is setting the scene for the future stories. What it does is it says in verse 17, and it's a summary, not just from this story, but for the future. As for these four children, God gave them what? Okay, knowledge and skill, how far, how broad? In all areas, in all areas. And remember, they're in a school where skill and knowledge is really, really, really important. Right? Because that's this whole business that they're, they're involved in. They're being trained and educated to be leaders and authorities and govern and manage. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before who? Who's going to quiz them? Who's going to give them their graduation test? Okay, Nebuchadnezzar himself. The king communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them how much better? 
Ten times better than all the others that were in his realm. And Daniel, then it gives us an idea, a brief summary, how many years he serves because of his brilliance, his intelligence, his God-given wisdom. So we have a few little details here. Daniel and his friends are personally interrogated by the king. Why would the king do the personal interrogation? He's a busy man. He's got a lot to do. Why would he, you know, why would he as the president say, I want to have the one-on-one with these guys? Don't trust who? Is, does, does Nebuchadnezzar, remember the rest of the book, does Nebuchadnezzar have any reason not to trust other people underneath him? Think through future stories. Is there intrigue and jealousy in the palace? Yes, no? Why does Daniel end up in the lion's den? Because the people falsely accused him. They set up the law that said nobody should pray to any other god than the god. And they, their only reason, if you jump ahead, the only reason they, tried, they got the king to pass this law was because who were they trying to get? Daniel. They were after Daniel. Is there palace intrigue? Oh, sure. Where there's power, there's problems, right? Okay. I mean, seriously. Doesn't the White House entertain us all? With all the intrigue that, no matter who the president is, isn't there forever intrigue coming out of the White House? You know, an unnamed source. Don't you love those reports? Okay, that it's a perpetual thing. Now, the king knows that. Uh, and, and by the way, let's add to it. Not only that, these are going to be the king's personal advisors. Or they're going to be the advisors to the people like the king's son or whoever he appoints to be over this realm, this realm, this realm. When he sends one of his governors, when he sends one of his princes to go and, and govern, he's going to send with them some of these advisors. These are, these are the cabinet members hand-chosen by the king. So, yeah, he's going, to have, he's going to have a say into who's going to be in his cabinet, if you would. And so the conclusion then regarding Daniel is stated a couple times. We are told by the Spirit of God that God wants us to understand that Daniel and his friends were exceptional and their wisdom, especially, this is so important, it wasn't their innate wisdom, it's not their innate skill set, but what do... What does the writer want us to understand? Their skill set, their knowledge came from where? Okay, it's the Lord. It's the Lord, and it's very important. And so they end up working together, and the people that they end up working together, in your last verse, or so, or the second last verse, it talks about magicians and astrologers. I remind you that those are the individuals that, according to Deuteronomy 18, they were, if they were in the Jewish land, they would have been killed. The magicians are those who cast spells. The astrologers are those who are the stargazers. And so these are the fortune tellers. These are the ones who work with mystical things. And so Daniel has to work side by side with these individuals. And uh, there's, again, no indication that Daniel is, uh, is advocating for them or he is against them. He is trying to keep a neutral spot but keep his own integrity while he's working in the midst of an ungodly government situation. Okay, he's not revolting, he's not rebelling, he's assisting, he's trying to... Can I ask this question? Is it okay for a believer to be involved in government? Yes or no? Should a believer work for the United States government? Is there anything wrong with that? Okay, is there anything good about that? What? You could be a good influence. What? Testimony, okay. Is, is there anything wrong 
with believers running for public office? No. No, not at all. Okay? Um, they can be influential, can they not? Okay? And so there's nothing wrong. Is there anything wrong with you getting involved, if you choose to, to getting involved with the grassroots politics of going and getting involved with whether it be the Republican or Democratic Party and getting involved on in the basic and becoming a participant? Now, some of you might say, yes, if I, you know, I have a relative who says, if you're not of a certain party, you can't be saved. Uh, you know, if you're a believer, claim to be a believer, and you, and you join this party, you cannot be a true believer. I don't see anything in Scripture that says that. Now, we, have, we may have strong opinions about the parties, but can, can believers get involved with local politics? Sure. Sure, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's something good about that to trying to influence because too often, what do we end up doing? We complain and complain and complain, but we do nothing. We do nothing. I remember one believer telling me that they made this comment, I never vote. It's like, why don't you vote? I never vote because then I'm not responsible. Okay. Um, I would suggest just the opposite. If you choose not to vote, then you are even more responsible by doing nothing. Okay? And so we want to make sure we remember that. Like Daniel's case, now, Daniel didn't have a choice in this matter. He's drafted into this, and yet he stays there for how many years? All the way, look at the last phrase, all the way into the, is this say, second or third year of Cyrus? The first year? Okay, later on in chapter 10, he'll say the third year of Cyrus. So he's giving us an idea that when he's writing, probably that tells us what? When Daniel wrote chapter 1, how far along is Daniel in his, in his career? He's, 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 pro- he's at least where? The first year of Cyrus. Okay, so he's seen a lot of this already. And so this is more reflection. And it's interesting how he remembers so much detail. I don't know about you, but I can't remember detail from the last week. Last Sunday, I walked into the auditorium. I saw somebody here at the back. I came walking in, and I stood by that back pew, and I was doing like this. And somebody said, what's the matter? You look like you forgot something. I did. I forgot why I came into this room. I was on an errand, and I couldn't remember it. And they started laughing, and we were joking, standing there joking. And I said, well, I'm going to do my normal trick. I went all the way back to the office, walked into the office, stood there for three seconds, remembered what it was, came in here and determined I'm not talking to anybody until I get my, my errand done. Or I'll forget it. Yeah, okay, so you've been there. Okay, so that happens. And Daniel, here he is in his, it could be at the time that he's writing this, he's in his 70s, if we have our projection of dates right. And so then what Daniel's doing is he's writing his, his uh, memoirs under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He gives a lot of little details. Chapter 2 now is that big chapter that gives us future events. And what I'm going to do this week and next week is I'm going to combine the two chapters that he gives us, the future governments, the beast and the statue. We're going to look at them together. So let's just get started with it today. Chapter 2 opens up, and what happens in this chapter is we find out a lot of little details of the intrigue inside the palace. Now, the biggest 
the biggest overriding idea of chapter 2 is God's greatness, God's control of all governments. But there's a secondary, and as we just kind of get started here, let's deal with the secondary factor. There's the personal level, the personality level. This is giving us a reflection of what Daniel and his men were like and how godly they were. We ended up chapter 1 talking about their character, their conduct. Chapter 2, just be, it continues right there. They have all this wisdom. They have all this character. They have this godliness. In chapter 2, it's just portrayed how that just continued, not just when they were 16-year-olds, but as they got older. So we jump into the story, and we read, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled, and his sleep went away from him. The king commanded to call the, the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, for to show the king his dreams. So they come. They stood before the king. The king said unto them, I dreamed a dream. My spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then they spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell your servants your dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing's gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall become the porta pot. And if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, you shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation. What an option. Okay, if you were put in that spot, you're probably thinking, chances are you're going to die. Okay, and your, and your properties are going to become the dung heap. That, that's what you're looking at. Okay, and this, you woke up this morning thinking you're going to have a good day. This just became your bad hair day. This is a really, really challenging situation. And they answered and they said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know of a certainty that you would gain time because you see the thing is gone from me. But if you will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. You have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation. Do you get the impression? Let me put it in question. What do you think the king thinks of his advisors? Does he have great confidence in them? No, he doesn't trust them farther than he can. You're right, right? Okay, so he's threatening them. The Chaldeans answered and said before the king, there is not a man upon the earth that can show the king. By the way, that's their wisest statement in this whole story, right? There is wisdom right there. No man can show you because... You know the story as it unfolds. Who shows the dream? God. God. And Daniel, Daniel's just the conduit. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such a thing of any magicians or astrologer or Chaldean. It's a rare thing that the king requires, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this cause, the king was... Okay. You're working for this guy. And he's having a tirade. He's angry. He's furious. He commands what? Destroy how many of the wise people? What's the problem with that? Let, let me rephrase this. Do you remember you were a kid? Did this ever happen to you? Okay, there was, there was four of us and then there was two more cabooses seven to ten years later. But when we were little kids, if my mom and dad came home and something was amiss, which was most every day, something was amiss and awry, and they didn't know, nobody fessed up. My dad had the policy. Everybody gets it. 
Everybody gets it. Now, some of you have no clue what I'm talking about. But that does that seem fair to a, a six-year-old that you're getting in trouble for something that the other has done? No, no, absolutely not. just doesn't seem fair. In this story, it says how many of the wise men, key words, how many of the wise men are supposed to be punished? But not all of them are there. How do we know that? Notice the next few verses. They come to where Daniel and his three friends are. Doesn't it kind of throw, doesn't something throw you off from the end of chapter one to this story in chapter two? Who, who is it clearly stated? Who does the king know is ten times better than anybody else? Daniel and his friends. Who doesn't get called upon? Daniel and his friends. Why that is, we don't know. But who's going to be suffering the brunt of the punishment along with the dummies who are called, if I can use that phrase? Daniel and his friends. It is a no-win situation, you know, in that sense, according to what they're... And the king, you know, now can you imagine, can you imagine a leader having a tirade and shooting off and having a having you know an anger an anger moment and losing control. Can you imagine that being the case? And so here the king is just he's blasting him. So let's set up some of the scene. Let's let's add a few details, okay? We know already from what we've been seeing that Daniel and his friends have been noticed, they have been commented on, that they have been brought in favor. Chapter two, verse fourteen. It says again, Daniel answered unto answered with counsel and wisdom to Ariok. The captain of the king's guard. By the way, the captain of the king's guard has one order given to him. It's seen in verse 13. The decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. And so Ariok comes with what purpose? The captain of the guard, he's going to do what to Daniel and his friends? He's the executor. Okay, he's the, he's the, you know, the head man here taking care of him. So when Daniel sees him, he answers with counsel and wisdom to Ariok, which was gone forth to slay the wise men. He answered and said, Ariok, the captains of the guard, why is the decree so hasty from the king? Ariok made the thing known. Daniel went in desired of the king. It is interesting that the captain of the guard would even pause and hesitate rather than carry out his job. What does that tell you about Daniel? What's that? He's respected. Now remember, Daniel's a young kid yet, by, by our standards. Daniel's a kid. Okay? But he's respected that even the one, and by the way, there could be the, other, there could be the flip side too. Could Ariok be a little bit hesitant because he knows the king is being rash? Okay, is there common sense sometimes in politics that people say, uh, let's slow this down because maybe the, the storm will pass? Okay, and so Ariok's involved with this as well as what happens is, as the story unfolds, Daniel asks, and, and it's an unwritten, but it's there. In verse 16, Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time. What does that say that the king gives Daniel time? It says the king's probably cooled down a little bit. Okay, time out here. It also, what does it say about Daniel? Yes, no? What's the difference between Daniel requesting time and the way the others spoke to the king? Is there any difference? Did the others tell the king he was out of line? 
Yeah, yeah. Don't you, do, do you remember five minutes ago we read it? I, I'm, I know we forget quickly. But do you remember? They said, you're being unreasonable. They argued with the king. You know, one thing that we ought not to do is argue with rash people. What does the Bible say about grabbing the ears of an angry dog? Don't. Okay, why not? It's foolish. Okay, here the wise men are arguing with the king, and the bottom line is, he's the king. He may be wrong, but he's also right, because he's the king. Okay, do you understand what I mean by that? Okay, so you're arguing with the guy. Sometimes it is better just to you know, walk away. Let things calm down. And Daniel wisely does this. So Daniel, in order to get the king's ear, okay, there's got to be something underlying that Daniel is respected, that the king, is, the king gives him some of the time. So what happens as the story unfolds, we've already put this up, and they set the scene to give you a kind of an idea. Daniel's in captivity for a couple years. Okay? He's still in the schooling training. That puts Daniel about how old? Okay, he's about 18 years old. He's still in school. That explains why he probably wasn't... I, I already posed the question. That's why he wasn't called, because he hasn't graduated yet. He hasn't been given the, you know, the tassel that says, wise man. And yet, he's been proving what so far? He's the wisest of them all. But he could be in training. The dream has that, that the way it's stated in the Hebrew, this isn't a one-time dream. This is a, he's dreamed the dream many times, okay, in that sense. And remember, if you're in that, in that age, in that era, dreams are important. It's the way that you, you learn things. Dreams are not a part of your imagination. They are a part of reality in an unreal sense. And so dreams in ancient times. And by the way, did God use dreams at times in other people's lives? Did he reveal things via dreams? Yeah, he did it multiple times. Okay, and so the king, we already said that he calls for all these wise men. And just to set the scene for you, just to give you, when we say these were wise men, they really were smart people. If you just, I'll give you just one illustration. Okay, in this time period, they were able to get and estimate what is the day what is, how long does the solar day go along? And so they were that close that they missed the solar day by 26 minutes. That's pretty profound for ancient peoples. Okay, they're clever individuals. They're not idiots. They're not, they're not people that are just only superstitious. They had some skills when they were dealing with a lot of the, the, a lot of the sciences and maths. And so what happens here is he wants them to tell the dream. He promises the rewards. We already read that. He doesn't want to tell them the dream because, one, it could have gone. When he says it's gone from me, he could be telling the truth that he can't remember. Okay, like you. You probably dreamed last night, and for some of us who dream most every time, within minutes we don't remember what it was, unless it's a real impacting dream. But he doesn't even remember the real impacting dream. That's a possibility. The other one is he's saying it, and he wants to use it for a test. But he's just saying he can't remember. So we don't know what it is. But the bottom line is everybody concludes nobody but a Lord, a God, can tell them what that dream is all about. So the king is furious. He's being irrational. He wants to kill everybody, all of his advisors. And so the, the issue is this is a lesson. This trial to Daniel's life was God-initiated. 
This isn't, an, uh, this isn't a happenstance. Who gave the dream to the king? God gave it. This is God initiated these things. These are, this is that hard concept that we're talking about out of the book of Job. Who started all of Job's problems coming into his life? We don't want to say it. But the reality is, who gave approval for Satan's attacks? The Lord did. The Lord did. Okay? And the Lord has his purposes. He has his designs. He also knows how we respond to it. And he never allows us to be tempted above that we are able. Okay, we understand that. But sometimes we want to explain away God or troubles by never, never saying God's involved. And yet the reality of Scripture is... God is involved, okay? And he does it. It's not a bad thing because the Lord always does good. He always does good. And so in this case, we have trials that are coming. And this trial is made known to the king through the Lord. Daniel makes it very clear that the trial is something that God has initiated into your life, O King Nebuchadnezzar. So what happened? Oh, I, I wanted to tell you the story. Just any, any of you ever hear, he's a football player, any of you ever hear of Bo Jackson? Yeah, yeah. He, he was one of those famous football players that also played baseball, if I'm not mistaken. He had a dual career in professional sports. When he's a senior in high school, he plays for a losing, losing team. But he gets a scholarship to Auburn University. And when he goes there, he, is, he doesn't go there as a running back. And that's where, for some of you who don't know his story, he ends up being you know, a professional running back. He sets all kinds of records. He ends up being, I think he's in the Pro, Pro Football Hall of Fame, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but he's, you know, he ends up as a running back, the guy who carries the ball. When he's in, um, in high school, he's a defensive end. He's not even playing the same position. So when he goes to college, his first, his first training camp at college that summer, the coaches at Auburn University think, hey, you're big enough and you're fast enough. We will change your position. So that year, that summer, they change his position, and he's learning just learning the idea of what it means to be a running back, how to carry the ball, things like that. And what happens in the first game, he's the third string guy or fourth string. I forget which one it is. He's not the starting running back. But after the first game, he, the running backs in front of him were so beat up and so hurt that the next game, he's put in as the starting running back, just learning the position. He's a freshman in college, and he's just getting a taste. That year, he goes crazy. He ends up winning the Heisman Trophy as a freshman. That's just unheard of. His, his opportunity came and he took great advantage of it. It, was, it wasn't something he wanted. He didn't want the people to get hurt, but he was thrown into this crisis situation for a young man playing sports and the opportunity became something that just defined him in his career. That same thing happens to Daniel. Daniel's having a defining moment in his career. And we have to pause and we have to say, okay, what was God doing in Daniel's life through this one, this holy opportunity that God is giving Daniel an opportunity before the king to be able to witness? This, this chapter is phenomenal. The chapter un unfolds that Daniel interprets the dream. And when Daniel is standing before the king, read through, just glance through. You tell me. When Daniel is talking to the king and he's telling the king, you remember down in verse 19? 
I'm sorry, we have to jump down further. That's when Daniel is praising. Um, when Daniel then went to Arioch, verse 24, whom the king had ordered to destroy all the bab- wise men, he went and said to him, Destroy not the wise men. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Arioch brought Daniel before the king in haste, and he says, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. The king said, uh, answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen in the interpretation thereof? Now watch Daniel's response. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded, the wise men can't do it, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, they can't show it to you. But verse 28, what strikes you? How he responds to the king. What is he, who does he give credit to? Okay, think it through. Who does the king believe in as far as a god? Okay, do you remember what happens in a short time? They build a statue, and the statue is of Nebuchadnezzar. And what's the order for everybody to do? Bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel's coming before this guy who's got a ego crisis problem. This guy is claiming he is God. And what does Daniel say? Basically, he's saying in a kind way, no, you're not. You can't even tell your dreams. You forget your dreams. Okay, he's not mocking him. But Daniel is just very forward in a gracious way with his faith, with his testimony. And, and remember, at this moment, what is hanging over, literal, could be literally, hanging over Daniel's head? Death. This is a death. If, if he gets it wrong, he dies. So how much stammering and stuttering would you do? How much stammering and stuttering? How bold would you be if this was a life and death situation and you were on trial for your life and the life of all these people? How much will you say to this man who thinks he's God that he's not? And you give all the glory to God. Well, some of us would respond, and appropriately so, we've got nothing to lose. Okay, so Daniel speaks out. He gives this witnessing opportunity. And so he's going to make it very clear. As you look at verse 47, he's going to say, it's God. It's all about God. This dream is about God. It's not about you. It's about God. And so he's speaking boldly. And as a result, we find out that he's going to be elevated and he's going to be, he's going to make impact. Okay. In fact, God's going to be elevated through this whole thing. Even the king responds later on and says, you know, the Lord God of, of your of your country. He is the one God. And so we have this isn't unusual. We have the same thing happen elsewhere in Scripture. Joseph, remember, and it happens to be dreams. When Joseph stands before Pharaoh, who does Joseph give all the credit to? It's the Lord. It's the Lord. The Lord has done this. And so Joseph, in his witness, he is speaking very bluntly. And by the way, because of his honesty and the working of the Lord, does Joseph get elevated with respect? Absolutely. Do you remember in the New Testament, same thing happened, that Paul is in, this, in his ministry in the end of the book of Acts, and as they're going, they're shipwrecked. He gets to the land, and everybody on the, on the ship, they survive. But when, da- when, I'm sorry, Paul is that evening bun- getting a bundle of sticks. Remember what happens to Paul? The snake bites him. And what do the pagan natives assume? 
He's got to die. He escaped death the first time, but truly he must be a wicked man because now he's going to die. And he doesn't die. And what happens? He's elevated. God is elevated in the sight of the people. And he's able to give a witness. And many of the people respond to the gospel. How God is able to use our crises moments if we would just speak up. If we would share our faith and not cower under the problems. Huge. Huge, huge lessons that come out. And so what happens here, as we mentioned, God brings it in the crises. Before we get into the story of the statue and the history and the future events, let's talk about reacting. How to react. We started off talking about Daniel's reaction when they were given an order to eat the food. How does he react? Okay, and so what happens here, Daniel is facing that imminent death. Can I suggest a couple different things? Have poise. Okay, when we're in a crisis, whether it be a health crisis, a financial crisis, a car crisis, whatever it may be, have poise. What we mean by that is no panic, no pouting, no attacking other people. Show some self-control. Just, you know, be one who when you're in your speech and what, show poise. Okay, don't, don't react. Okay, act, don't react. If, you're, if you find yourself, don't, don't do what the king did. The king is just a reactionary because he's in control. He thinks he can do it. Unfortunately, many adults think they can do it because they're in control of their own castle. And they have the right to just respond. Some employers do this. They have the right to just kind of you know, yell and scream. Don't do that. Show poise. Can we add to this another thought? Okay, Show propriety. Propriety means proper conduct. What it is is that idea is Daniel responds with wisdom and discretion, which you've got to think, that you've got to stop to think that Daniel is going to have not only self-control, but he's going to think through how, not just what he's going to say, but how he's going to say it. Don't you wish that we had a real, we had this automatic thing on our lips that would keep us from saying things quickly? Don't you wish it was just automatic with you? Maybe some of you have that self-control. But for a lot of us, we speak our mind under the pressure, and we shouldn't. We should think through before we just say what's on our mind. And so here he is, he's thinking through, and in this great trial, a life and death trial, he is going to have propriety. He is going to be respectful, he is going to request, he isn't going to be demanding, and he's he's going to operate in a way that is one that's going to gain even more respect with the people. So what happens here is Daniel, who's facing imminent threats, he goes to prayer. A lot of people make prayer their last alternative. Daniel makes it his first alternative. That's where I was getting to the wrong spot when I was going to read verse 19. Look what happens here. Daniel has desired that they would have some time. And so verse 18, he goes to his verse, back up a little bit. Uh, Verse 17, he goes to his three buddies. He says, hey, we're going to have to desire the mercies of the Lord, verse 18, which they're going to pray. And so then it says that they had, gives the impression that they had, they would pray. Verse 19, then the secret is revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel 
have blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times, the seasons. He removes kings, sets up kings. He gives wisdom unto the wise, knowledge to them that know understanding. He reveals the deep secret things. He knows what is in darkness and that light that dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O thou God of my fathers, who hast given me wisdom and might, has made known unto me now what we desired of you, for you have now made known unto us the king's matter. I want to pause and just point out a couple things here. Is that, and I want to move on, that, that how important little things are in life. Uh, we've used this story before. When this airplane was, ha- was flying in to Miami several years ago, as they were flying in, all of a sudden, when they hit the landing gear to go down, they didn't know if it did or not because the one light there on the dash panel was blinking. And it was blinking. So they started fooling with it to see, was well, the light bad? You know, how do we know? And so the man who was there at that panel, watching the panel, he, they had had problems with this light you know, earlier when they put up the gear. And so he's thinking maybe we need to unscrew the light and deal with it. And a couple other others in the cockpit, they're all gathered around. And while they're focused on this 99-cent light bulb, the plane crashed into the Everglades. Little things can distract us from the most important things. What distracts you from prayer? What little thing, what little problem takes you away from praying? Well, Daniel says, no, we're going to pray little things, big things. And when he prayed, several things stand out. He doesn't personally. He doesn't just say, hey, guys, you need to pray with me and then get busy doing something else. He prayed. When he's praying, he's doing it with others to, as a group. He's praying for God's mercies, God's grace to be shown, and he's praying, please reveal this. Very pointed prayer. And he, with faith, reveal this to us. We've asked, we think that you would do this, we're trusting you to do this, and so he's praying. And when he prays, God moves. True story that you may not realize, when Hudson Taylor was first headed over to China, as they were going along in the boat, they were, they were traveling and they got themselves into a spot where all of a sudden the winds had totally died down. But they were caught in the currents that were le- towards driving them towards some rocks near an island. The captain of the ship, he and the, uh, the men there, they tried all kinds of things and he yelled out one, at one moment, he says, you know, it's all hopeless, it's all hopeless, we tried everything. And Hudson Taylor, as a young man, as a novice in ministry, he called out, he says, we haven't tried everything, and he gathered a group of believers, and they started praying, and they started praying, started praying. And so as they were praying, the captain had sent some individuals out to try to put the rowboats in front of the uh, large ship and pull it away from the rocks, and yet the current was so strong. Hudson Taylor was praying, and he said that there was a moment where he was confident God was going to answer, and he yelled to the captain, put up the sails, get it going, and he was like, wait, we've tried that, nothing's working. Do it now, do it now. When they did, all of a sudden the sails became full, and they were saved. And Hudson Taylor thought that the lesson through many times after that, how God answered his prayers. And it held him in good stead through his ministry for years after that. Well, Daniel has a time of prayer. But what strikes me is he doesn't just pray, he praises. How often do we pray in crises but forget to praise? We're filled with prayers, but we aren't filled with praise. And you go through this text, and what's amazing is that as God has answered before, and by the way, set the scene, he's got the answer. This is a life and death situation. As soon as you get the answer, what would you want to do? Get up, 
go tell the king right away, right? Because the lives are at hand. What does Daniel take time to do? It's not long. It doesn't take long as you read it through. But what does Daniel do before he runs out the room? He praises. He praises. What a lesson. What a challenge for you and me. That Daniel, all of a sudden he praises and you look at it. You just think this through. Okay, he's praising. And even when he goes before the king, he's filled with praises. He's excited about what God has done. And so he's giving and giving praises. And later on, not only does he say that God has done it, but you look at all the different texts. God has made this known. God has made this known. He doesn't forget this. God has done this. Where he could have said, I have the answer. And it would have established him even more. But it's God, God, God gets the credit all the way through. So he's very careful not to take any credit to himself. Very clearly, he's giving all the credit. Even though it could benefit him, he gives all the credit. There is something else here that struck me this time as I was going through the material. Is Daniel makes sure that when he is saying comments to the king, and he's relaying information to the king, that he makes sure that he lets others know it's not just him. My friends were involved in this too. How many times do... do you know, all of a sudden people get complimented for the job they've done and others have participated, but they don't acknowledge the others. Daniel doesn't do that. Daniel's right away, he's focused on, he includes them. He makes sure that the others are acknowledged by Arioch, the ones who are the authorities, he lets them know. And so his praise, as you just go through it, and just read it, and let me just put these things up quickly. He is thanking God. He is acknowledging God. He is giving God glory, God credit. He keeps on saying, God, you are this. You are amazing. You can do this. You are in control. You know the light. You know the darkness. You are amazing. There is no doubt he is filled with praises for God. That's why we're here this morning. We're here in the next few minutes to be praising God. What's going to come out of your spirit? What's going to come out of your mouth this morning? Are you going to praise him for the way he's worked this week even? We have a lot to praise him for.